Welcome to Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Today's story, All He Surveys, Volume 1, Chapter 16. to the arm of the G-chair one second before transition back to the real universe. Force of habit. Captain Bern Giori had invited me onto the bridge for the event, but I declined, preferring this particular seat over any other on the ship. Transition from the command deck is one of those things that sounds more impressive than it really is. A countdown from navigation, a wrench in the stomach as the dimensions merge and then a bunch of confirmations about nominality. He had to extend the offer, I guess. As a member of the Vernays family, however minor, I carried the sheen of ownership over his vessel. That, and I think he was scared of me. This was the fast passenger transport Paziana, removed from its normal schedule and dispatched directly from Duenda to a meetup with Kajit interests in deep space. That rendezvous was scheduled for several days hence. It had been arranged by a group of Elmon's family agents, members of an unsavory squad of red-spattered ultra-loyalists that I admired immensely. We were early and would have to wait here in deep space between stars. A somewhat alarming intelligence report had come across Elmon's desk to the effect that enemy spies were strongly suspected to be an active operation within Hifa, and most likely upon Duenda itself. The safety of the Kajits was paramount, so we left immediately. It was now twelve days since I had magically, impossibly convinced Elmond that my approach was the right one for the family. Nothing less than witchcraft would have moved him. Neither my debatable confidence nor my shaky logic could have done the trick, yet... Thinking back on it, had there been any other components to my argument? It was something else that had brought him round, something he had seen and that I had yet to. Sindra had assumed she'd be accompanying us, but Elmond had another job for her. As a former family ambassador, she was known to quite a few of the noble clans in an official capacity. The Vernays patriarch considered it a priority to begin sorting through what families were on the side of the conspirators, and especially how many were undecided. She grumbled mightily, but appreciated being needed. Of course, this mission would also keep her out of immediate danger, so she also resented such a transparent contrivance, and called him out on it, warning all and sundry that it wouldn't work a second time. She cast me a ripping glance with that, but I just shook my head and acted dumb. The ship's return to real space was a little rough, but not the worst by any means. I called the commander over ship's comm and gifted him with a few flattering lies. 
Captain Giori's English was pretty good, but not his officers so much, and he translated my words to the bridge staff while still on the mic. The captain seemed like a bit of a bootlick now that there was time to get to know the guy, but I didn't hold it against him. This was a vessel that dealt with family, associates, partners, and creditors all the time, as it was usually dedicated to ad hoc runs between Duenda and two large colony stations owned by the Vernays. This was an unusual event for him, and its importance had been emphasized. I'd insisted on manning the gunnery station during much of the run out to the jump point, and then again now with the transition back into the real universe. This probably had inspired some worry, despite my assurances that it was only a precaution. We'd had no trouble leaving, and were now safely back in the real universe, a few light years above the internationally recognized plane of the galaxy, a standardized directional concept providing an artificial sense of up and down to stellar navigation. Radar and other sensors showed we were entirely alone, nine and a half light years out from Duenda and six from the nearest other star system. Truly, the middle of nowhere. According to the arrangement details, we wouldn't be joined for another two days, and that was assuming everything on the Cogent military end had gone well. A long time to wait, but better to do that out here, where we were alone, than back on Duenda, where we might have had unwelcome company. The expected ships were members of the Cogent's dedicated security force, mostly focused on protecting material assets. According to Glautuk, as well as to various assessments from Vernet's intelligence specialists, Kajit security could be considered competent and serious, though not so numerous. Their standing military was composed of 19 ships and warboats of various types, including one particularly impressive beast called Hu Fi Chuvage, which was the name of some place or person of note from the dusty old days of early star travel. They also had numerous attending vessels following the others around, such as fuelers, scouts, and emergency support craft. If I had any irrational worries about all this, and I did, one concern was real enough. We didn't have any idea what to expect from the arriving ships. Most prominently, the nature of their welcome. They would have heard many things. That their patriarch had been assassinated, but the rest of the family was alive. That the remaining family members were all dead in a pirate attack. Then a note from the Vernays would have come saying that the Comatosa and her children were actually alive. In their place, I wouldn't have known what to believe, and would have been ready for anything, good or bad but mostly bad. Between this sort of uncertainty, the short, covert notice they'd been given, and what seemed to be the dispersed nature of their forces, it seemed likely to me that the arriving ships, members of the Kriaz Defense Force, a security service owned by the Kajit family, would be more catch-as-catch-can, composed of whatever was immediately available rather than being a true tactical or escorting squadron. To set this thing up, Elmont had used some elite couriers he had on tap to get a message to Kajit Security, 
headed up by a certain Admiral Omatsu. It had been delivered to a branch office in the hopes it wouldn't be intercepted or even noticed by Piani's allies. A simple acknowledgement and agreement was sent back a day later through even more covert means. The actual response seemed weirdly terse to me, but I was assured by those who did this sort of thing for a living that less was definitely more when it came to secret communiques. Still, that family's security force was clearly overcommitted. Because of their many investments throughout the region, and the comparatively small size of the Kajit military, its ships were scattered hither and yon, in tiny packs, more or less on permanent guard duty. Because we didn't want to tip off any spying eyes watching the jump point in Hifa, Elmond, Glautuk, and I thought discretion was the best course of action. Paziana came and went from Hifa at least three times per quarter, often more than this and never on any particular schedule. It was as innocuous as we could hope for at this point. Paziana, surrounded by a large group of Vernet security ships, exiting the star system to a non-registered point of destination, would have been far less so. And there were other reasons for playing it close to the vest. I can't run this operation of yours by the Family Advisory Council, the Vernet's patriarch had emphasized, with a stern look I wasn't used to seeing. They would not endorse it under the current circumstances. If I tried and failed with them, then went ahead anyway, it would give those old men grounds to file a grievance in the next formal meeting, forcing concessions that neither you nor I would be happy about. Okay, I replied, confused. Only so many resources like fuel, ammunition, and wages may be siphoned off the general project fund before I have to add them as separate line items upon the quarterly report. It's those kinds of details in the fund that will reveal this endeavor to outside eyes, allowing the FAC to question its validity and therefore funding. That would likely kill the operation entirely, to say nothing of you should you run out of missiles at a critical moment. Win quickly and cheaply, in other words? If you could use your own pocket money and tie it up yesterday, I'd ask you to do so, he joked, entirely without mirth. Similarly, he was unable to say, just yet, how many of the newly purchased security vessels he'd be able to commit. So here we were, the Codgets and myself, a week and a half on from that conversation, objective time, and closer to twenty when you added in jump space, just sitting there, between the stars. It was not how you won battles. I was assuming there'd be at least one, but then again... Maybe not. Piani could decide we weren't worth any further bother. If she granted my second request, after all, and found funding or support for her plans from other quarters, it was possible she now considered the Kaja debacle to be over. A relief, perhaps, but it wouldn't satisfy me. Nor I imagined Elmond. At the moment, he'd be calling in favors from his peers in the other families who were not currently known to be under the spell of the good lady. If he got a few of them behind him, this thing could have legs. 
That might go a long way toward preventing an actual clashing of arms, since I didn't think Piani was looking for a war. At least, not yet. And what was with Emperor Augustine IV? How do you run a supernation and not keep tabs on people like Iwanid Piani Trasal? The Alliance was watching her, if Eli Marzian was to be believed. Even if Augustine wasn't the type to arbitrarily jail or murder his enemies, you'd think he'd at least have an eye on them. Elmond hadn't been so sure about that, and neither was Glau when I brought it up. When he began feeling the pressure, Kamo Kajitvudin had chosen to sidle up to the Alliance. That said a lot about how much help he expected to get from Augustine. The Emperor was an old man, but that shouldn't have been a factor with age reassignment procedures available. He could have chosen to be young again. He could have chosen to be any age at all. Then again, his physical age might not have mattered more than his mental age when it came to policy. Values formed in one's youth could often put a person at odds with current reality. Some people who went through the regen process experienced their younger days all over again, living life to the hilt. Others, though, never did any such thing, because experience had taught them about all the risks involved in such fun and frolic. This type just lived youthful versions of their elderly selves, and it was hard to see how their continued existence was of benefit to anyone, including themselves. I'll admit that my view on the whole topic, including age reassignment procedures, or ARP, might have been ageist. Resenting people for getting old. Resenting them for getting young again. Resenting them specifically for getting old, but not dying. It was also classist, since you generally had to be rich to afford it. Actually, that was starting to change. A few terraformed worlds in the Alliance were offering ARP as part of comprehensive medical plans for the average person. These were places without population problems, of course. Few artificial colony stations could provide it without also requiring that the de-aged individuals emigrate once it was done. From a community standpoint, that rather defeated the purpose of extending the lives of your citizens, so it was still being figured out. Either way, you'd think an emperor, of all people, would be the first in line. There were no laws on the books over here about ARP, regarding inheritance of rank or property, but as it became more commonplace, voluntary retirement from positions and titles would likely become a requirement of the process. Otherwise, I could foresee a growing generation gap in the empire of a most angry and violent kind. Maybe that's what Augustine foresaw as well, and he'd decided to die in harness like all his ancestors. It wouldn't be a bad precedent to set. After an hour of these sorts of musings, things were still quiet. Nothing and no one, just how it was supposed to be. I logged the status no event and shut down gunnery. We weren't directly followed here. We hadn't thought we would be, but I was now satisfied on the point. Two days until the handoff. 
The location of the meetup that we'd relayed to Kajit Security was not at all in keeping with the registered flight plan, since an unfriendly someone could conceivably have gotten hold of our itinerary. That wouldn't help them to find this patch of vacuum. False itineraries were illegal, of course, but far from uncommon. For criminals, nobles, and refugees alike, it was an effective way to disappear for a while. Later that shift, while I was doing some reading up on noble politics, a call notification dropped down into the corner of my eye view from one of the staterooms aboard. I opened it up, curiously, and a dark-eyed young woman with beautiful mahogany skin appeared. She was wearing a blue hijab that had flowing edges attached on the sides, like ribbons of the same material. I'd never seen the like. She looked away from the camera pickup, then glanced back with huge, dark eyes, smiling shyly. Her name was written in a foreign script, unintelligible to me. It took a moment to recognize the Hadiyah. Her bruising was completely gone, and the fear in her eyes admirably submerged. Seen this way for the first time, she was a striking girl, no more than twenty or twenty-one years old. I chose a realistic digital avatar for myself, which would be inserted into the video call stream. It looked photo-real and would lip-sync to my words, and even emulate my likely facial expressions based upon what I said, the volume I used, and my tone of voice. It wasn't perfect, but was usually good enough for casual conversations. This was a major downside to having all-in-one retinals. They only pointed outward, so no one could actually see me when I was using them for communication. A lot of people ended up wearing comm rings or vid watches in conjunction. As I said, I hadn't made up my mind about the things yet. Hello, I greeted, smiling. Nice to see you. Yes, Familian Cano. Uh, uh, hello, uh, Famo de Santos. I am Hadia Noela du Centavre. Uh, you may remember me? Of course I do. How are you bearing up? Ah, uh, oh. And she grabbed a corner of her head covering to hide a smile and giggle, looking away from the camera. The lens appeared to be slightly above her eyeline and rock steady implying it was one of the wall-mounted comm panels in the cabins. The area behind her was blurred, but bright. With mouth covered and eyes averted, she continued speaking. Cedra Rusina, er, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Mistress Rusina, the, the Kamotosa? The Countess, yes, I prompted, hoping for a point to emerge. Uh, yes, she asks me to contact you. Excellent. What can I do for the Countess? She, she hopes the familiar Cano of the Blessed Verne's family is available for tea. Vuldan, uh, 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 Shieldman, Avil will also be present. Um, sure. Yeah, why not? When would be convenient? The Countess asks you if uh, 1,400 hours today will not be too soon? That would be fine. Barring any emergencies, I'll see you then. Please extend my thanks to Countess Bonacajit for the invitation. And thank you, Miss Dusentabel, for the call. I'm happy to see you're doing well. 
She giggled again and turned even further away from the lens and microphone so that she was effectively standing backwards. She said something garbled but appreciative sounding, or perhaps dismissive, and then swept the air behind her blindly with one arm, trying to end the call without turning back around. I did her the favor of cutting it on my end. Demonstrating respect to underlings and servants was apparently unknown. I'd merely spoken with the informal politeness I was used to offering strangers, even though she wasn't one, but the girl reacted like I'd been effusive. Glau had said my manner was off-putting. Most nobles wouldn't think of a servant tasked with making a call on behalf of a social better as even being a stranger. They were intermediary machinery, hardly different from the comm devices themselves. You could ignore a stranger, but you could also engage a stranger in conversation. You could tell them the time of day or directions or even your deepest secrets because they didn't know you and you'd never see them again. But it seemed like you couldn't do those things with a servant. Sindra had harped on me for the first year or two after I was inducted into the Vernet's sideshow. She wanted me to take some lessons on the hierarchy and etiquette of the noble classes. Specifically, how to treat underlings. I laughed at her for a while, then tried ignoring her. Finally, I told her flat out that I wouldn't do it. I knew how such people should be treated because I was one of them when I wasn't tripping through her family's ivory towers. She exploded then, calling me a savage, and refused to speak at all for a whole hour. Underlings were one thing, but... While I doubted afternoon tea counted as a formal event, I understood enough by this time to know that, considering my ignorance and general cloddishness regarding the supposed social superiors of the Empire, there'd be certain expectations I couldn't meet. I thought on this for a while, then called Glau. You got me into this, didn't you? I led with. Famo, she is extremely curious about you. I don't know how to sit at tea with a countess, I complained, showing apprehension as plaintively as possible, hoping for sympathy and a reprieve. He grimaced in a good-natured sort of way into his wrist pickup and said, Of this I have no doubt, but you'll need to try. Do not be concerned, the countess does not expect a stone to dance. A stone? Swing by my cabin and show me what to do. You've nothing to fear. This is tea, not a pair of Janssenaton. <laughs> he was laughing. Whatever that is. Ten hundred hours, my cabin, yes? Of course, he promised, still chortling, and we both signed off. my relief, tea was served at a table and not while we sat on squishy cushions on the floor or on something else from which I'd have trouble extricating myself. Glau sat across while the countess was to my right. Her son, Decamo Beeuler Kajit, all of ten years old and now the heir apparent to the title, sat to my left. 
Another short table, like a tray with stunted legs, had been set off to the side, where six-year-old Indita, far more flexible than I, sat on cushions. Hadia Dusentable squatted with her, keeping the girl happy with attention. Indita laughed freely and chattered constantly in a pigeon of Arabic and Seishan. I couldn't understand a word. Even my rig garbled most of it. We started off with some flaky pastries filled with ground pistachios, sticky with some sort of honey-like sweetener. Actual honey was exceedingly expensive and rare in space. It was hard to keep bees when you didn't have any flowers. But on settled worlds, it was possible to find at affordable prices. Taste-alike analogs were common enough. Either way, these little cakes, or cookies, or whatever they were, had likely been obtained on Duenda for an occasion such as this. Maybe for this occasion expressly. I studied the glossy, layered treat on my plate. I found this example too sweet to be enjoyed all on its own. The tea was quite strong and bitter, though, and cut through the saccharine salt. Black as space, it was thick, like a decoction, poured from a samovar on an adjoining table into tall glasses and metal holders by the countess herself. Hot water from another spout on the hissing antique diluted it to mere ink. Glautuk explained, during my cram session, that it was a sign of deep respect to have the lady of the house prepare it for you as opposed to one of the servants, and the Kamatosa was a respectful woman. Her English was excellent, he insisted, but all she offered at first was a soft greeting. The Hadia answered the door to their cabin, barefoot and wearing a dark purple robe and black head covering. She glanced at me with amused embarrassment and bowed when I entered. I removed my soft shoes, which were really more like heavy socks with a rubbery sole, and followed her into another room where everyone was waiting. Glau and the young Decamo stood when I appeared at the hatchway, and I bowed to the countess and little boy as I'd been instructed. That was about all I could keep straight, to be honest. This thing had really gotten me worked up. You are from the Alliance, Famo? asked Beeolder in English, with a high, only slightly accented voice. He used the familiar form of my title. It was a low-speak contraction, but had become fairly universal. People called me that all the time when I was visiting, no matter what language they spoke. I am, Jarden System, a long way from here. We have been to the Alliance, he continued, but did not go to very many places. I would like to return some day. There is a lot to see, I agreed, careful not to assure him of anything. I caught Glau's eye, and he gave me an almost imperceptible nod, which I interpreted positively. So far, so good. I found the tea rough to drink without a lot of creamer and sweetener. Sugar there was a plenty at the table, but creamer was apparently not used. I smiled a lot and took fake sips, nursing it. Even a couple drops on the lips was enough to cut the sweetness of the pastry, so that's what I stuck with. Glau took up the challenge of discussing the alliance and border areas with Beeler, though I chimed in from time to time. The countess had barely addressed me after that initial greeting, 
and then only in regard to the tea. The shieldman didn't address her directly at all, so I didn't either, in case there were yet more mysterious manners in play. Eventually, Countess Rusina took a sip from her cup, wiped her mouth in a practiced and dainty manner, and pointedly looked up at me. She had round features and big, dark eyes. Quite pretty in her way. I feel I must thank you for all your assistance, Familiancano dos Santos. Her voice was clear and high, thinly accented, nearly without pronunciation artifacts. Please call me Ejok. Just so. You may address me as Rusina, as befits close friends. I believe our situation would be much the worse without your help, Ejok. You have our deepest gratitude. Indeed, this is true, young Baelor chimed in stiffly, as if remembering something from Rode, and he raised his cup in salute. You have bestowed upon us a great honor in befriending this family. The others present, including the little girl, after some gestured prompting from her minder, all mimicked him, and I suddenly found myself with burning cheeks. They must have spent a long time practicing this, and it was rather sweet and sad that they should be so reduced as to offer a wandering misanthrope such a presentation. Thank you. The honor is mine. That was simple and without any embellishment. Perhaps too simple, but they seemed grateful that I didn't linger over it. A protest would require that they argue with me about how high in their esteem they held me. I'd made the mistake to be dismissive of someone's offhand compliment one night at Sindra's home on that aforementioned first visit. They harangued me for what seemed like an hour until Sindra told me to just shut up and accept the remark with a thank you. I was stressing everyone out. Apologies in advance, Ijuk, Rusina asked, after we pulled away from the scheduled formalities for another minute or so of difficult silence. But you are not Muslim? This seemed to fly out of nowhere, but I made a point of not doing more than raise my eyebrows. Um, no, I'm not. I hope that isn't a problem. Oh, no, not at all. It is just that you have an Arabic name. I had an uncle, sadly he is past, who spelled his common name in English as you do, though it was pronounced Ayuk. He was from the Dalte system in church space. Really? My mother took the name from an acronym of her profession. I've never met anyone else with it. I have, Glautuk offered easily, biting into his crunchy, flaky, sticky cake. He chewed for a bit crushed nuts dribbling into his beard. Different pronunciations as well. Ejik, Ayok, and others. It's Terran, I believe. He wiped his face with a napkin, then drank some tea. Well, imagine that, I said, rather impressed. It was a simple thing, but new to me, and offered nearly a full minute of pleasant novelty in this otherwise uncomfortable gathering. When everything felt good and awkward again, I offered up a topic of my own. You must be happy to have friends on the way. We have friends here, the countess answered, 
and gifted me with a quick smile that vanished like a breath. Well, of course, but members of your family's domain, I mean. Your own ships. It'll be a comfort to be among them again, won't it? She simply nodded, and Glau didn't pitch in at all. More silence after that. This was going nowhere, and it seemed ridiculous that Kamatosa Rusina Bonakajit was curious about the situation but had no questions, so I decided to be a bit more direct. Is there anything you'd like to know concerning the transfer or the operations ahead, Rusina? Have there been changes? Um, not yet that I know of, but if there's anything you'd like clarified, I'd be happy to go over it in detail. I believe I understand the plan, Ichok, she replied simply, watching me with those bright, dark eyes that suddenly seemed to miss nothing. Maybe they never had. I was more hoping to understand you. Your motivations are as mysterious as they are welcome. As you say, Countess, you have friends here. And the Honorable Lady Tressal has enemies? Well, she's worked very hard to get them. I would hate to disappoint. She should die, young Baelor injected, with a note of purple venom, his face turning a shade that threatened to match. His mother raised a single finger in the air without even looking his way, and he immediately relented. I... I apologize. Not at all, I told him, matching his red-rimmed eyes, which were otherwise copies of his mother's. I said almost those exact words about Lady Tressal not long ago. I believe it's good to verbalize your end goals before starting upon any endeavor. We do not condone violence in this family, my dear friend Ejok, the boy's mom injected, attempting to break the connection before it had a chance to leave a permanent mark. Apologies, Racina, but our enemies don't share your convictions, laudable as they are. No one has used the word yet, so allow me. This could be a war now. Combatants that don't fight are better known as casualties. Glautuk gave me round, warning eyes and a thin grimace. Rusina's face turned a shade darker, the brown becoming earth-toned, then brick-like. Her expression followed. I must ask that we refrain from such talk around the children. Maman! the boy cried, but he was shushed into silence, and he dropped his head in perfect obeisance. At ten... I was bouncing off the walls at gatherings like this and entirely disinterested in the conversations of adults. Beauler had the gravity and composure of someone decades older and the kind of self-discipline that very few of any age could mimic. He was in an agony of grief and fury, yet he held his tongue out of respect for his mother and for propriety. Of course. And that's all I gave her. If the Countess was expecting more, or perhaps another apology, she would have a long wait. I didn't so very deliberately go out on this limb just to dance around people's sensibilities. It was one thing to just casually talk about the prospect of violence and hatred unbidden. That was distasteful and boorish. 
But these were allies, and it was important we understood each other. She was doing everything for her kids. That was clear, and I got it. In her shoes, or bare feet as it were, I'd have done the same. But what we want for our loved ones isn't always what they need. She seemed to be anticipating a future for the next Count Codget and his baby sister that was simply out of reach right now. Nothing about these children was going to be what she once envisioned. The sad reality of life was that no one was too young to grow up too quickly. If the earlier part of the get-together had been stilted, the rest of it became glacial. When enough of it had oozed by like a slug, Glau cleared his throat and announced he had duties to see to. I added my own similar excuse to his and thanked the Codgets for their hospitality. It has been most charming to speak with you at last, friend Ejuk, the Countess expressed with words, but not with her tone of voice. We were all on our feet now, and she bowed slightly in a most polite manner. Her son did the same, as did her daughter, after another direct cue from her governess. I gave them all a nod, repeated my thanks, and retreated. Glautuk followed after a deep bow of his own. When we were out in the companionway, he caught my arm and turned me to face him. He looked pissed off. That was the rudest display I have ever seen in front of the Countess. Who are you to question her? To cast aspersions upon the values she instills in her children? I'm a concerned friend, Glautic. Concerned, frankly, that a preoccupation with the morality of those kids will get them killed. If there's another, better way to make the point, well, then I am sorry. I don't know what that's supposed to look like in the Empire. That is no excuse. I'm not offering one, I replied blandly. He was mad. I wasn't. I thought we cleared this up already, but maybe not. Maybe you feel compelled to dance around the etiquette of a system conspiring to put that family in jeopardy, but I don't have the time or temperament. I'm not a diplomat, Glau, and I'm not a courtier. I'm not even adequate dinner company. Thank Allah this wasn't dinner, he expelled. Right. Let's keep that in mind going forward. Now, regarding the squadron we're expecting, what might it look like on the low end if that's the best they can do? He watched me with that same grimace for a bit, unwilling to let the outrage slide, but then shook his head as if throwing off a fly that had landed on his cheek. The anger was gone, not miraculously, but rather by force of will. The worst-case scenario is that none of them show. This I don't expect, but perhaps we should plan for it anyway. Agreed. If that happens, I say we make directly for Dakil's system. The Vernay's security forces will be assembling there over the course of the next week. We can't move forward with anything, not even diplomatic efforts, without an escort. We can't move forward until we've met up with Riik Fuliz and his staff. Without an actual cogit negotiator to speak with undecided families, we might be forced to rely upon your diplomatic skills. I laughed out loud at that, clapping him on the shoulder, and he smirked. We had come to a junction in the companionway, 
and went our separate ways. The next two days passed slowly. How many would show? None of them? All of them? All of them would be great. An escort of 19 actual military-class ships of the line. Though that was unrealistic. If we even got one, I was prepared to be satisfied. It would be a relief to turn this mission over to a space force that had the firepower to make it stick. Until that time, though, I'd do my job. On this ship, that meant gunnery. I'd insisted on having my own security code in place, capable of making weapons hot, and Elmond had agreed. Normally, only the commanding officer could do that. In the Alliance, that was the law. It didn't matter if you owned the ship or were the Ain Prime Minister himself. If the captain said no guns, then it was no guns. But this wasn't the Alliance. Paziano was sporting a high-capacity missile tube, fed by a belt ordnance chamber holding 18 darts with four full reload belts that could be slotted in if needed. Missiles could be fired singly, in tailored bursts, or on full auto, emptying the load in less than a second. They could work in concert, be set to self-target, or be controlled remotely. There was also a single multi-spec laser, but it was pretty underpowered and better used for target painting in support of the missiles. I didn't like this array of weaponry especially, but the ship had a nice star jump range for its general class and had seemed like the best choice on such short notice since we were looking to keep the handoff quiet. This time... Gunnery took the form of a spherical chamber in the style of a Bear Hark Snapdragon security suite. Those were nice. You just installed them as is and ran all your sensor and triggering feeds to their patented universal interface hardware. I'd been using and training with them for years. This was a rebranded version, but it only varied in the control layout pattern conforming to Imperial standards something I'd also trained in. Six hours before the scheduled time, I entered the chamber and fired up my favorite simulator, which I'd installed on the first day. It took into account active sensor feeds, live telems, and updated engine and navigation details. It was standard practice. Many military ships had dead eyes that did nothing else, all day, every day. When on patrol in known hot zones, such artificial intelligences were sometimes given the go-ahead to defend the ship first and report about it later. I myself preferred to do much the same, in a more manual fashion. I didn't have an AI available for such a job, but I did have scenarios in place that mirrored the real-life conditions outside, sims that utilized every piece of information available about a ship's capabilities and current status. These were run in a seamless cycle, updating moment by moment. It was experience that informed this approach, and restless nerves. I'd refined my process over the course of years, ever reaching toward an ideal of efficiency. Since there were hours yet to wait, I set the status of gunnery to standing by and got up to leave. 
I was only down the companionway, though, when a fast series of alerts I'd preset went off in my eye view. Graviton alarm. Positive threat assessment. Launching ordnance. I turned and sprinted back just as there was a shudder in the hull. The first belt had fired off. As I threw myself into the seat and gunnery once again, Telems were just then coming up on the hollow display from Paziana's laser targeting system, which was already tracking a military vessel that had appeared before us. A vessel that wasn't showing any transponder signal. You have been listening to All He Surveys, Volume 1, a Star Drifter novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. This story is copyright 2022 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The All He Surveys theme is a piece called Blossom by Edward Malov and is licensed through tribeofnoise.com. This story is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead nor any particular place or situation. Any similarities to such are purely coincidental. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site, davidcollinsrivera.com, where you'll find everything Star Drifter, including more audio novels and stories, the Star Drifter tabletop role-playing game, podcasts, newsletters, and more. Stop by, won't you, and drop me a line. Thank you for listening. Take care.